Uh, I want to pick up, uh, maybe I'll just mention verse 20, uh, rather 37 of chapter 21, but most of what we'll be doing today will be in 22. Now, if you haven't been here for a while, or you're new, one or two of you are new to the group, or at least fairly new, we're studying the book of Acts, and where we are now, we're at nearing the end of the book, actually, there are 28 chapters in the book, and Paul is now in Jerusalem. His third missionary journey, third of three missionary journey is complete. He is in Jerusalem. He had had the desire to go to Jerusalem, um, d- despite the warning and concern of many of, of people who were with him. So he's in Jerusalem, and he has created no small stir in the city. Indeed, uh, it would probably be accurate to call it a riot. Uh, it's certainly somewhat organized as well as somewhat spontaneous, both together. It depends on who it is. And they are essentially out to kill Paul. I mean, that's really what they ultimately want to see happen. And what occurs then is that's going to be really hard to get that pen. I mean, that is really, it's going to be a major, major task to get that pen. So uh, I wouldn't mind if you crawl under, but it looks like a nice pen. I'll crawl under and get it. (laughs) Just kidding. Uh, But Paul is uh, created quite a stir, and the Roman military officer, he's called a tribune, uh, responds and sends soldiers, and they rescue slash arrest Paul. (laughs) And it's sort of a combination of trying to protect him, because the one thing Rome will not tolerate is disorder, chaos, riots, that kind of thing. And as I talked, if you were here last week, or if you listened to it, I drew a really horrible drawing on the board of, uh, of what Temple Mount looked like. And the northeastern, excuse me, northwestern corner of Temple Mount is the Antonia Fortress in the first century. That's where the Roman soldiers were. And there are four towers, and they watch constantly the Temple Mount because it's always an area of potential volatility. And they acted. So anyway, that's all in background of where we are now. And so the tribune in verse 27, excuse me, verse 37 of chapter 21, now asks Paul. They've rescued him, sort of arrested him. Uh, He's chained to a couple of soldiers. Do you know Greek, he says? And then he asks, in other words, do you understand Greek, which was the lingua franca of the day? That's what people spoke. No matter who you were, you had to be able to know Greek. And he asked him that. Then he asked him another question. Are you not the Egyptian who recently stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins, the Sakari, that's the Greek word there, out into the wilderness. He's referring to something that happened in A.D. 54 when an Egyptian led a group of these secretive assassins who carried Sakari, carried little daggers in their robe, and they'd be walking in the city and there'd be a Roman soldier. They'd take that dagger and stab him in the heart, put it back in and keep going. They were very effective. And uh, Rome was terrified of these guys. And so they were ruthless and relentless in dealing with them. And so immediately, that's what the Roman tribute, are you this guy? And of course he's not. And so Paul responds in verse 39, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia. That is a, the, Cilicia is the name of the Roman province. Tarsus is his hometown. Uh, it was a major, major city. It was a university town. That's where he went to school. A citizens of no obscure city, I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. That's an extraordinary request. 
And I mean, you just, I want you to just let that sink down a little bit into the depths of your mind. He is asking something that this Roman tribune had no responsibility to allow him to do that. No, that was not a due process right of a Roman citizen. So he's asking something extraordinary. And it's, it is because these are Jews who are basically leading the riot, fearing that he is turning against Judaism and all the stuff that we studied last week. And so the, the Roman tribune allows him to do that. He gives him permission to speak from Antonia Fortress, which is elevated, he's on the steps, to address the people in Temple Mount. And so chapter 22, for the most part, is his address. Uh, I mean, it's not a sermon, it's his address. And what he does, listen very carefully, this is a very important sentence. What he does is he reviews his life with the intent to, to give a witness that Jesus is the Messiah. So he's going to tell his story. He's going to give a biog- an autobiography of his life, but his whole intent is to show Jesus changed my life, therefore he's the Messiah. I mean, that's what he's trying to do. And so I'm going to read this fairly, you know, I'm going to read it. I'm going to go slow, but I'm not going to stop because this is very similar to Acts chapter 9. In other words, Acts 22 and Acts 9 parallel one another. They complement one another. In Acts 9, he's addressing another group. Here he's addressing a crowd. And he wants to, he wants to show his credentials, but he wants them to understand Jesus is the Messiah. He's changed my life. So I'm just going to read. He gives a, an autobiographical account. And again, it complements Acts 9. Brothers and sisters, hear the defense of now that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, that's, a, that's very important. He doesn't address them in Greek. He doesn't address them in Latin, which both of those languages he would have known. He addresses them in Hebrew because these are, these are, these are Greek, or these are Jews. Now, that particular Greek word could also mean he's talking to them in Aramaic, which is a dialect of Hebrew, a more, uh, uh, I don't know how else to say it. It's a dialect. It's not as, as pure and polished as Hebrew. We're not sure which one, but it would have been common for the people in Jerusalem to know either one. So anyway, so he's not addressing them in Greek. He's addressing them in Hebrew or Aramaic. This is what he says. I'm a Jew born in Tarsus and Cilicia. Verse 3 is where I'm reading. But brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers. Now that's important. Gamaliel would have been known to these people. He was the most outstanding rabbi of the first century. I mean, you know, it would, it would be like I studied under Billy Graham or I studied under, uh, who else do you really know uh, that, that, that's well known in terms of, I, I was a student of D.L. Moody if you lived in the 19th century or a student of uh, one of the great revivalists like Charles Gratison Finney. I mean, somebody, a name that most people would have known. He's establishing his credentials. I'm worthwhile listening to. I'm not some aberrant heretic that you charged me with. 
You said, I'm prostituting the law. I'm telling you not to, to bow to Moses. I'm telling you not to be so. I want you to understand, I'm a Jew, and I meet all of the credentials of being a good Jew. I even studied under Gamaliel. And he continues being zealous for God, as are all of you this day. So I had the zeal of my faith that you guys have. And to further prove this, I persecuted this way to death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, and that you should recognize that this way. That was a name of the early church from John fourteen six, when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the light. That was kind of a name that was attached to this movement until Paul uses it. Continuing, verse 5, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. Now, the high priest is Caiaphas, and the council is the Sanhedrin. And he, when he says, can bear me witness, he had appeared to them. That's whom he was addressing in Acts 9. And so, presumably, many of those people would only be about 15, 16 years earlier. Many of those people were still alive and perhaps even serving on the council still. So he said, if you don't believe me, go ask those guys. So again, he's trying to establish his credentials because he wants to demonstrate something. Jesus changed me. Don't say I don't know the law. Don't say I don't know what it means to be a Jew. Don't say I don't know about Moses. You can't say that. You have to explain something. I've been changed. And that's where he's headed. From then, meaning the Sanhedrin, I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those who were there and to bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. Again, that's exactly what he says in Acts 9. And as I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. Now, that I talked about this when we were in Acts 9. I want to embellish it a little more here. That could be the Shekinah. Are you familiar with that word, Shekinah? Shekinah is a Hebrew word. That is the glorious light that always appeared over the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies. It was a manifestation of the glory of God. I think the Shekinah is what uh, Peter, James, and John saw on the Mount of Transfiguration in Jesus' public ministry. It's recorded for us in Matthew 17. And I, I think it makes sense. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, you can see a parallel to that. So it is that Shekinah, that manifestation uh, of the glory of God, suddenly shown around me. Now, notice, notice that, that pronoun, around me. Not upon me only, around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Where, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And when we talked about that in Acts 9, when he's giving a similar account, to persecute the church is to persecute Jesus, because he's head of the church. And that's how he's confronting Paul. Paul isn't persecuting Jesus. Jesus has risen. He's in heaven at the right hand of the Father. But he's persecuting the church. And so Jesus, who's head of the church, identifies with the church. Now, verse 9, those who were with me saw the light but did not understand. Um, that's a little hard to know how to translate that. They heard something. 
but they didn't understand what they're hearing. Either they couldn't hear it being articulated or all they heard were noise. We don't know. But they did not hear the words Paul heard. The voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise, go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, he was temporarily blinded, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And remember, those who were with him would have been fellow people, presumably jealous Jews who, Jews who are heading to Damascus. All of a sudden, they're aiding him. And then he tells us, which he told us in Acts 9, and when Ananias, a devout man according to the law, it's interesting he adds that. He didn't have to say that. But he adds that, according to the law, Ananias is another faithful Jew who came to understand Jesus as the Messiah. Well spoken of all the Jews who lived there, came to me standing by me, said, Brother Saul, I always find that extraordinary. Brother Saul. Only uh, a couple of hours earlier, Saul was the terrorizer, the killer, the murderer. Now he's a brother in Christ. That's just amazing. And for those people listening to Paul, that would have to make an impression on them. They would have to think about that. Here's this faithful Jew, Ananias, now calling Paul, the zealous Jew, a brother. Ananias was pretty honest <clears throat> when he was when it was revealed to him that there was a man coming mm-hmm. and he had heard of him and and he was just no way am I going to do this? He's the guy who's trying to kill everybody. I mean, again, I mean, to to keep this in front of your thinking about Acts 22, he is trying to prove that Jesus is the Messiah, and he has changed me. And it's just this evidence that he's presenting is is extraordinary. Uh, Where am I? He came to me, saying, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers... This is a Jew speaking to another Jew. This is a Jew who's understood Jesus as the Messiah speaking now to another Jew who's just come to understand Jesus as the Messiah. When he says, the God of our fathers, whom is he speaking of? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The patriarchs. The patriarchs. The God of our fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob. That's how he's identified in the Old Testament appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and hear a voice from his mouth. To whom is the righteous one referring? To Jesus Christ. The exalted Jesus, the righteous one. And then verse 15, which I, I mean, I just, I've thought so many times for Paul to hear this. This is now his assignment. He's reviewing it. We had read that earlier, and you know, I mean, all his three missionary journeys document, but he's just saying, this is my assignment now. You will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. So, Paul, what's your assignment? Be a witness to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. He has saved me. He's redeemed me. 
And so Ananias says, why now do you wait? Rise, be baptized, wash away your sins, calling on his name. Now, this is a figurative construction here. You start at the end and work toward the beginning. You call on his name, who washes away your sin, then you're baptized. This figurative construction is you start at the end and go toward the back. So you call on his name for salvation. He washes away your sins, then you're baptized. Now remember, the um, for a Jew in the first century, to think about baptism was not a new thought. They did ceremonial cleansings all the time, where they go to these mikvot, as some of you heard, we've talked about that before, but all around Temple Mount there are dozens of these. So that's not unusual. That was part of the ceremonial cleansing. But what Paul is doing, is about to do, he is now going to publicly identify with Jesus Christ in baptism. And so, again, that is, it's just a, a, a remarkable, remarkable step that Paul is taking. It's a public one. It's one that is going to always be told again and again and again that this Paul, who used to kill us, is now one of us, and he's publicly identified with Jesus in his baptism. He is a changed man. He's not the same man, which is what Paul wants to show. And then he continues and actually finishes, when I had, continue, verse 17, when I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple... I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, and the him is Jesus, saying to me, Paul. Now, that verse 17 is new information. It is not in uh, Acts 9. Acts 9 tells us he went to Jerusalem. Here in Acts 22, he's telling us a little more detail. What does he, it's amazing, isn't it? This is a redeemed Jew who understands Jesus the Messiah, and where does he go to pray? To the temple. And so he's praying in the temple, and this vision, they translate it trance, could be translated vision. He, he sees Jesus, and Jesus speaks to him again. Make haste, get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, verse 19, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by approving and watching over the garments of those who killed, us, killed him. That takes you back to Acts 7, where Luke told us in Acts 7 that Paul was standing by and watching them kill Stephen. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And so now he's not only given witness, as he was told in verse 15, now he's told by Jesus the Christ, you're going to be a witness to the Gentiles. So Paul is now done. He's done with his, his defense, if you will, because they're going to interrupt him in the next verse. So I read this kind of quickly, but any questions or comments? Uh, yeah, and... and uh... On 21, 
when he said, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Prior to that time, can you, can you um, comment on the preparation that Saul, now Paul, had as he, as he went away to, to study further, even though he had had all this formal training? Okay, do you mean now that he has uh, put his faith in Christ, or do you mean previous, before he put his faith in Christ? Well, at the time, at the very time that he did, and then he was schooled further. Okay, that's what I mean, from the time he meets Jesus on Damascus Road until he goes out on the first missionary journey. Is that what you mean? Yeah. It's 13 years. Um, it's uh, uh, A.D. 33 through A.D. 46. Uh, there are silent years. We know very little about what he did. Most of the time, he's up in Tarsus, and um, he tells us a little bit about it in Galatians 1 and 2, very little, but we do learn a little bit. And so what I think, and, and I'm not the only one who would argue this, those 13 years, those, quote, silent years, close quote, are years in which Paul is studying, thinking, and reprocessing everything he learned both as a, a Greek-Roman person studying at Tarsus University as well as studying under Gamaliel. And he's putting, I really believe this because I think we see that in his writings, Romans, for example. He's putting to get, together his theology, centered around Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah of Israel, my Savior. What does all that mean? And so, uh, and he puts together a theology that you see reflected in the book of Romans and, and, well, all of his letters, but Romans is such a deep theological book. So, I mean, that's, and that's an important point to always remember that God rarely, rarely brings somebody to salvation and immediately sends them out to a major leadership role. Rarely does that happen. Uh, God almost always takes his time preparing somebody for a phenomenal position of leadership. As Woody knows, it took Moses how many years? Yes, you do. It's, it's because you are that 80 years. Remember 80 years, 40 years in Egypt? But um, I just picked on you because you had said that one time years ago when you we were studying Exodus. You mean he was as old as I am and he's ready to lead them out. Yeah, but that's right. But so that's that would be, that's a very important thing to remember. I guess the reason why I bring it up is because sometimes we uh, might become impatient uh, with ourselves, where God is more patient perhaps with us than we are with ourselves. And, and we should let him, let the Holy Spirit lead us and teach us as we go so that we Absolutely. get there we have his message, not our message, even though Paul can relate his experience. That was, I mean, I worked in academic ministry most of my life. That was, that was one of the most difficult things for young, zealous guys. Uh, I, I didn't work a lot with women. I didn't think that was wise to do that. But with young guys who are zealous, and they just, they just want to get busy doing lots of things. And there's nothing wrong with that, but I used to just stress to them the importance of adequate preparation and growth and maturity to do what God wants you to do. I mean, when I got into leadership years ago, I, I read a couple dozen leadership books. I still have a lot of them. But one of them, I think I might have told you this, but one of them absolutely changed the way I looked at my life. 
The book's called The Making of a Leader by a guy named Clinton. What is it again? The Making of a Leader by a guy named Clinton. No relation to the former president. But anyway, what he did is he uses examples from the scriptures and business and education, church ministry, parachurch ministries, all that. And he says, one of the things I've observed is that God takes his time preparing a leader. And this is what he says. The first 40 years of your life, God is preparing you for the 20 most productive years of your life. And then the remaining years of your life, in a chapter he calls Afterglow, you focus on that about which you're really passionate. And so when I got into leadership, uh, I was in leadership 20 years, five as academic, maybe 15 as president, that, I mean, I, I just, that hit me so, because I was 43 years old, 40, almost 44, when I got into leadership. And I, I just remember, oh, good night, that just kind of fits. And I started thinking, Lord, are these going to be 20 productive years? Because when I became in leadership, it was a real challenge. There were very difficult things we had to deal with. But we got through all that. And uh, uh, Well, anyway. So then when I was approaching 65, my 20 years were almost over. And I told the board, I'm, I'm going to retire. June 30th, 2012 is my last day. And it's, you know, like October, okay, yeah, here you go, okay? And then it's January, and they're still yawning. And so in February, I think it was February, I wrote them a letter and said, on January, June 30th, I am retiring. <laughs> and finally then, they I'm exaggerating a little bit, but, uh, and that's why in my life now, I'm, I'm 71, it's been seven years since I retired, I am doing what I'm passionate about. But, I mean, this didn't, you know, what I'm sharing with you guys didn't just happen. This is years and years of study. And I think it's important for young men and even you guys who are young men to understand God takes his time in preparing you. And regardless of where you are in life, no matter what your age is, God is still preparing you for unique things he's going to want you to do. Regardless of how small or insignificant you might think they are, they're not. Uh, Chuck Swindoll, I read one of his devotionals every morning, and a couple of mornings ago there was one. He said, um, okay, I want, to, I want you to tell me, who, who was Martin Luther's nanny? Who was Martin Luther's teacher? And then who, who was Billy Graham's teacher? Who led Billy Graham to Christ? Who was D.L. Moody? Who led D.L. Moody to Christ? Who taught D.L. Moody Sunday School? All those, does anybody know those answers? Nobody knows those answers. But were those people important in Billy Graham, D.L. Moody, Martin Luther becoming what they became? Absolutely. No one is insignificant in God's program. No one. Because everybody is contributing something to what God is doing in his redemption, redemptive program. And so, I mean, that's, I would say this to the guys, no matter what you're doing, it's not insignificant. No matter how insignificant it might seem to you right now, it's not. It's a whole matrix of things that God is doing. You know, they tell us, I, I'm not sure how they arrive at this. I really don't, but the statistic is a fairly well-known one. A person has to hear the gospel or presented to them clearly at least seven times before they respond. So that means, you know, the first person who shared, I mean, who, just pick anybody, the first person who shared the gospel with you you know, and nothing happened, that doesn't mean it isn't significant. The Bible uses the metaphor of planting seeds. 
And so it's just, if you're a seed planter, praise the Lord. Somebody's got to be a seed planter. And it's not the person who ultimately ends up leading that person to Christ. It's the six or 10 or 25 people that contributed to that to that point. And so, I mean, Paul's preparation for where he is right now took years and years and years for him to be able to do what God wanted him to do. I noticed uh, why you mentioned Moses and now we're talking about Paul. Uh, Neither of them were real anxious to do what they were told to do. Uh, Sometimes they didn't think they were qualified and and it still happens today, I'm sure. Uh, But sometimes the Lord wants them to just go forward and and, uh, he gave uh, Moses his your brother Thomas, didn't he, to help him? Aaron, Aaron, Aaron. Yeah, Aaron. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and in this case, he's, it sounds to me like Paul saying, well, I'm not ready for this yet, you know, because I was imprisoning those who, who were believing in you. And, and, and so he's kind of like arguing with the Lord like, like Moses did. In a way, yeah, yeah. yeah. Because uh, of what I did, did. Why would you want me to, you know, yeah. yeah. And then he says, uh, go, or I'll send you far away to the <laughs> you, you do wonder, I mean, he's he's telling us now what that experience was like in A.D. 33 or 34. And now, of course, it's many, many years, years later. But that would have been incredulous for him to think about that. Yeah. I'm, I'm what? I'm going, yes, you and the Gentiles. Now, look at verse uh, 22. It would really be lovely if we could get chapter 22 done. I mean, would be, God would be very pleased. But if we don't, that's all right. Up to this word, meaning I will send you to the Gentiles, up to they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth. He should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging rust into the air, they are getting ready to stone him. Just like you go back to Acts 7, when they're getting ready to stone Stephen. They're taking their stuff off and getting ready to stone him. The tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, that's the basement of Antonia Fortress on the northwest corner of Temple Mount, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched out, excuse me, stretched him out for the whips. This is the, what this is, in Latin it was called the flagella. That's what they're about to whip him with, as they stretch him out to whip him. And that whip was, I mean, this is just horrible. It, it had, uh, uh, it was a whip, but there were leather straps at the end of each one. So you, know, you have one whip hitting your back, you have about ten little straps, little strips just ripping away at your flesh. I mean, it's just, it's a horrible. But did you notice the language? To examine him by flogging. <laughs> In other words, we're going to torture you until you tell us. I mean, this is the Roman system of justice, if you want to call it that, was just horrible. It was horrible what they did. But this tribune is making an assumption. 
that turns out to not be true. What's the assumption? That Paul is not a Roman citizen. Because you don't treat Roman citizens like this. There are due process rights for a Roman citizen. And so, Paul then responds. Paul, when they had stretched him out for the whip, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by it, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? Now, there's two things to note there. Number one, who's a Roman citizen? And number two, uncondemned. He has not gone through all the due process procedures. One of the things Rome did, despite all of their their terrible practices, Rome codified due process law and procedures. One of their gifts to the Western world is rule of law. And that was a positive. And they have very, very we, we have copies of them. There, there's a lot of them that have been found. But these codified procedures. And so what Paul is saying is, you have not given me due process rights. I'm a Roman citizen, and you are flogging me even before I've been condemned, where I've been through a trial and through due process procedures. Now, I'm telling you, this centurion and his boss, the Roman tribune, are going to be... <gasps> Because they could be arrested, and exactly the same thing could happen for them if they deny due process rights to a Roman citizen. Well, he says, is it lawful for you? Mm-hmm. He makes it personal. To them. Yeah, I mean, he is. You, Paul, you say, well, what, Paul shouldn't be doing that. Why shouldn't he be doing that? He's leveraging his due process rights for the sake of the gospel. There's nothing wrong with that. How does he prove that? Prove what? Every Roman citizen was supposed to carry a little, it was a little tiny box about this big, which identified them as a Roman citizen. Now, whether Paul had that or not, I, I can't know, but that is how you proved you were a Roman citizen. You, you had an identification, a passport. I'm making that up, that last sentence I made up. But you, they were to have a little box about this big that identified them as a Roman citizen. So, I mean, this is a crunch time now. So the response in verse 26, when the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said, what are you about to do? This man's a Roman citizen. So remember, the tribune had given the centurion this order. So the centurion is aghast at the order. I'm not going to do that. And continuing, and he said, yes. And the tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I'm a citizenship by birth. This, this tribune's name is Claudius Lysias, L-Y-S-I-A-S. He will be identified in chapter 23, verse 26. We'll see, you see his name. And Claudius Lysias was not a Roman citizen, but he became a Roman citizen by paying the enormous sum of money to become a Roman citizen. And so he's just incredulous. He said, man... I paid a lot of money for my citizenship. Paul said, I was born one. See, the Roman Empire had a 14th Amendment. 14th Amendment Constitution says, birth citizenship. If you're born in the United States or one of the territories, you are automatically a citizen. Regardless of your parents, you are a citizen. Rome defined that very specifically. He was born in a Roman city. 
Tarsus was a Roman um, refuge city. So he's automatically a citizen. That's really, that's cherished. What's Paul doing? You say, well, why, why doesn't he just allow himself to be beaten for the name of Jesus? No, he's leveraging his due process rights to promote the gospel. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribunes was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. Now that, again, this just is instructive for you and me. Rome was was brutal in how it treated non-Roman citizens. But there were codified procedures, due process procedures, for Roman citizens. And these guys ignored that. Obviously, I mean, they could hardly believe that this Jew was a Roman citizen. All right. This is sort of, I get all excited about this stuff. I mean, it's so neat. You can factor so much stuff from history into this of what's going on. Any questions? Everybody with me? Hi, John. Good to have you here. God bless even those who are late. Don't worry about it. We're glad you're here. All right. Now moving into verse 30. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he is being accused by the Jews... Now the he there is the tribune. He unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him, Paul, before them, the Sanhedrin. So what is going on here? The tribune, because remember, what precipitated all this was a riot. And so he's trying to get to the bottom of what caused the riot. And so the best thing for him to do, and it makes sense, i got to find out from these Jewish leaders, what's the problem with this guy, Paul? I don't know, what are they doing? For me, he's a Roman citizen, he seems like a nice guy. What are they trying to do? So this is kind of like a pre-trial hearing. Now, that's language that we use in the 21st century, but it's sort of like that. It's a pre-trial hearing. Before I put this guy on trial as a Roman citizen, I want to find out what is the big deal with this guy. And the only way I can find out is to know with certainty from the Sanhedrin. And so that word counsel that you see in, um, where is that, in, uh, in, in, verse 20, uh, in verse 30, the counsel to me is the Sanhedrin. Seventy Jewish leaders, the top leaders of the Jewish community. The majority of, on the Sanhedrin were Sadducees. Pharisees were in a minority. So they're going to meet. And that's what chapter 23 is all about. All right? This is trial number two, pre-trial hearing before the Sanhedrin. Can I ask a question? Uh, why are they going before the Sanhedrin if he's a Roman uh, citizen? Well, he's a Jew. Rules of, you got that? He's a Jew. And he's, well, and he's, he's assailing the, the Jewish religion and the, San, and the, the Jews from from uh, Ephesus and, and uh, Corinth and all those other places uh, were in Jerusalem for the, for the Holy Day, and they, they started they brought this riot, the same riot that they had in the end of the third missionary journey. They brought that uh, same group in, and, and they recognized him in the, in the temple and started to uh, assault him again. 
Oh, yeah. And, and But the jurisdiction of the Romans would seem to override. Well, no, that's right. That's right. But before he, this is the Tribune, before he puts him on trial, Paul, he wants to find out what is the big deal with this guy? Why are they against him? Because he hasn't viol- he Paul has not violated any Roman law. He's trying to figure out what caused this riot, which is what he's really interested in. He doesn't want that to to go on anymore. So he's got to find out what I mean. What is it with this guy that you don't like? And so it's that's why I called it. Maybe I shouldn't have done that, but I called it kind of like a pre-trial hearing. He's just trying to find out what is going on here. Why are you against Paul? And so he sends him to the Sanhedrin with the intent of gathering information. So presumably the tribune is here listening. And Paul's, oh my goodness, Paul's language here is a lot different than he was talking to the Roman tribune. And looking intently at the council, at the Sanhedrin. Now, when the ESV translates that looking intently, I mean, Paul is intensely, I can just imagine something. He's gazing at each one of them. You know, it's just, it's just, oh, hi, guys. You know, it's, he's gazing really intently at each one of them. Eyeball to eyeball. He wants to know body language. I'm making that up. But it's that kind of a, a gaze. Brothers? That's something. He calls them brothers. They're fellow Jews. I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. I haven't done anything that goes against our God, our traditions, our standards, our ethics, our theology. And the high priest, Ananias. Now, do you want me to tell you a little bit about this guy? Ananias is the father-in-law of Caiaphas, whom I mentioned earlier. The real high priest is Caiaphas the son-in-law of Annas. He is, he is kind of a, an important official behind the scenes, and he commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Strike who on the mouth? Paul on the mouth. For violating Jewish law. So Paul responds, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Now, he's speaking to the high priest and calling him a whitewashed wall. What would that symbolism mean? A whitewashed wall. Yeah, you're really, really filthy, but you have just a nice thin veneer of whitewash over it. That's what they did. That wasn't like paint. You, you clean up your place by whitewashing everything, and in about four days it's dirty again. So in effect, he's saying, you're really a filthy person, but you just whitewashed. It's like when Jesus calls the Pharisees whitewashed sepulchers. On the outside, you look nice and clean. Inside, you're dead. So, I mean, this is not a nice thing to say. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet you, contrary to the law, order me to be struck than those who stood by Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. 
For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. He quoted Exodus 22:28. I find that amazing, man. Paul knew the law so well that he could pull an obscure verse out of Exodus 22, verse 28, and use it, I was wrong. I shouldn't have said that. I didn't realize the man who said that to me was the high priest. So, I mean, that's, I, this is amazing. So Paul is, he is humbling himself and again demonstrating, I do take the law seriously. I shouldn't have done that. Now, when Paul perceived, okay, so now that introduction is over. So what Luke doesn't do, which I wish he would have done, between verse 5 and verse 6, there's a little bit of a time gap. Things settle down again, and so this is what he says. Now when Paul, I hope I didn't say anything. Thank you, that's all right. Usually when people walk up, out of my classes, I've offended them, so I, I must, yes, sir. I do have a question. What did Ananias, uh, in verse 12, Verse, verse 2. He said he was a devout man according to the law, well spoken by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. It's not the same Ananias. Oh, okay. It's a different, it's a different, different man. Okay. That's good. That's good to clarify it. Different man. Okay, there's a little bit of time gap between his verses. So now things have settled down. Now look at this is look at how shrewd Paul is. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus says, often the sons of darkness are more shrewd than the children of light. Don't be that way. Be shrewd. Here Paul's being shrewd. Now, when Paul... Can you define that? Because shrewd sometimes has a negative connotation. How are you defining shrewd here in this context? Well, shrewd, I mean, you're right. Shrewd can have a very negative connotation, but it has a very positive connotation. If you're a good hunter, you're shrewd. You study your game, what's an elk or a moose or a deer or a pheasant. You study that, and you know what you need to do to be able to shoot him or her. And you're being shrewd. I mean, you're, 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 you're being shrewd in this sense is a wisdom word. It's your understanding and discerning who, who it is that you are opposed to, Satan as well as the Sanhedrin, and being shrewd, you figure out what is the best way I can approach proclaiming the truth to a group of people that are divided over one issue. And that dividing point is the doctrine of the resurrection. And so what, what does Paul do? He brings up the resurrection. That's shrewd. I mean, that's Shrewd is you know, you know who your opponents are, you know their worldview, you understand what they believe, and you want to take the truth you want to get across, but you leverage that in a way that it helps stir them up to seriously consider what you are representing. And so Paul knew that the Pharisees and Sadducees disagreed on the doctrine of the resurrection. 
So the text says, when Paul perceived that one part were the Sadducees and the other the Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. Woo! Number one, he's just identified with the Pharisees. And he was a Pharisee. He tells us that in Philippians 2. So presumably, he may even have been on the Sanhedrin years ago. We don't know that for sure, just perhaps. But immediately he brings up, the real reason you're against me is because I believe in the hope of the resurrection of the dead. The Sadducees were the theological liberals of the first century. They denied the resurrection. They denied the existence of angels. They only read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They didn't read anything else. Whereas the Pharisees are the theological conservatives of the day. They deeply were devoted to the doctrine of the resurrection, which is taught in the Old Testament. And so Paul shrewdly, shrewdly brings up the theological point that will divide these guys. And so what happens is they start fighting among themselves. And here's Paul having a cup of coffee, eating a Reese's peanut butter cup, and just watching them go back and forth. Because the next verse says, and when he said that, the dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. Why? Luke tells us, because the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. The great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisee party stood up and said, we find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? Shrewd. Paul has gotten to divide over a key theological point. So in the short run, Paul has won. Now, that's not going to last, as you'll see. But he's brought up the point of contention on the Sanhedrin, the doctrine of the resurrection. And so the Pharisees... We're for this guy. We don't find anything wrong with him. But remember, they're a minority on the Sanhedrin. And when that discussion, dissension became violent, the tribune, after that, Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down, take him away from among them by force, and bring him into the barracks, bring him back to the Antonia Fortress. So we learned one thing there, as we had earlier talked about in the beginning of this chapter, Tribune, this is a pretrial hearing. He's trying to find out what the issue is. He's there. He's listening to all this, and he sees this is going to lead to violence, and I do not want a Roman citizen killed on my watch. So he takes him back to the barracks, to Antonio Fortress. Verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him. Who's the him? Paul. And said, take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, you must also testify in Rome. So now Paul, one of his great longings, one of his great goals, one of his strategies for the gospel of the Mediterranean, the Mediterranean world was to go to Rome. The Lord Jesus told him what? You're going to go to Rome. And that was the Lord Jesus. Yes, I think we should assume. That's correct. That's right. That wasn't crazy. Oh, no, man, Absolutely question really may not be relevant. No, no. I'm sitting here thinking, you know, Luke wrote the book of Acts. That's right. 
An MP3 player there, and that's got it all, yes. Yeah, that's got, no. uh, what, there are two things here, Jim, that we, we, we infer that, that could be uh, possible. Number one, Luke is with Paul at this point. He had joined him in the second missionary journey, had been with him in most of the, not all, but most of those times. He also was with him as he gets into Jerusalem. It may be possible that Luke is here at the pretrial hearing, actually there. There's nothing in the text that says he isn't. So, I mean, he could have very well, and in, in all probability was. But the other, the other if, if that's not true, the other is he did go with him uh, in, you'll see in, a, in, in the next chapter, he is with Paul the whole way to Rome. And so it would not have been, you know, unusual for Paul to explain to him in detail, look, this is what happened. This is incredible. I get to, and he tells him everything. Because I think Paul, because we saw how he just lifted Exodus 22 right out of, of the Old Testament. And Paul was really brilliant. And so he would have been able to remember, assuming Luke was not there, to be able to remember what, what happened. And, would have, and Luke's writing it down, because Luke's going to do the history. Amazing yes. To capture the dialogue the way it's here mm-hmm. is so much more powerful than Luke to say, well, he had a confrontation with the Sanhedrin, yeah. and they had a fight, and he walked away. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's, Absolutely. Absolutely. You, know, you get the words of Paul yeah. and yeah. understand the implications of them. That's right. And that's why uh, most expositors would probably suggest that Luke was here. He was part of that uh, group that was because he he was pretty much with him until those last days there in Rome, um, when he gets into a house arrest at the end of the book in Acts twenty-eight. Jim, would we say that this book was written for us to sit around this, these tables today? Just. Um, I mean, as as important as it was back then when it was first written. Yeah. I mean, did God foresee this group of men? Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. he's all in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul is, is talking, he's quoting from the Old Testament, telling about Israel, and he says, uh, Folks in Corinth, this all is written for you, too. This is written for you to know. It's written for you to understand. That's why we're studying it. That's why I'm making application of it. So, yes, same thing. All scriptures inspired by God, profitable for all those in training in righteousness, correction, admonishment, all that. Absolutely. Can can I do one more thing in the minute we have? Would, would it be all right if I do that? Any other question? All right. Verse 12. When it was day, the Jews, now these would have been those who were hostile to him. Probably not the Sanhedrin, those guys who had brought the charges much earlier in our study made a plot and bound themselves by an oath to neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. How many were involved in this conspiracy? Verse 13, more than 40. So more than 40 zealous Jews took a vow to kill Paul. Now, I mean, you get, you get the sense here of what the tribune is facing. I mean, this is creating an incredibly volatile situation for the tribune, but this is life-threatening for Paul. But what did Jesus just tell him? You're going to Rome. 
So Luke is telling us that this is not going to be easy for Paul to get from Jerusalem to Rome. Because now you have four, over 40 assassins that want to kill him, and they've taken a vow. If you want to find out what happens, come back next week. But this is really exciting. Because the rest of the book, for the most part, is just how Paul gets to Rome. But we're going to have now the next, the next facet of this is he goes to Caesarea, which is where the Roman governor was, where the, the legions were kept, and so on. It's real, again, it's, it's incredible what happens here. And we're going to see a really cool dialogue between him and the Roman governor. I, I, I'm having a ball with all this. I hope you guys are having as much fun with all this as I am. It's really an exciting passage of Scripture. So thanks for your good questions. We all want to make sure Dave gets his pen. That's a very valuable pen. All hour I've been looking at that pen on the floor. So I'm going to pray. Father, we thank you for our study. Thank you for these men who uh, are willing to come out on a very cold, windy day and come to a time of intense study of the Word of God. We thank you for the the privilege that we have. It's an amazing privilege to study openly and discuss and apply and think about the revelation of God to humanity. And thank you for privileging me to be able to teach and just to encourage uh, through the Word of God each one of these men. Lord, there, there are men who are serious about their faith, men who are serious about their walk with you. Energize them, enable them, equip them, Use them, regardless of their age or what they do. Use them. Continue to be the vehicles of your grace to other people as they represent you. We want to represent you well. Help us to do that in the name of Christ. Amen. See you next week.